Good evening. I'm Pastor Gillespie from St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church and School, Sherman Center, Random Lake, Wisconsin. You are gathered with us for our Wednesday evening Bible study, which we uh, started, I suppose, at the beginning of uh, the lockdown. We did this because uh, we used to have a Wednesday evening divine service. This would provide opportunity uh, for folks to be in God's Word, regardless of uh, you know if their work schedule prohibited them from attending on Sunday morning. Um, but we do have the stream on Sunday morning, so it really serves a different purpose. It gives us opportunity actually to study some text um, in addition to what we study on Sunday morning and what we study each morning in our daily prayer. So uh, tend to tack tackle something a little bit more intense, and we've been going through the book of Hebrews, uh, which I've found quite beneficial. Hopefully you have as well. All right, I see Tim has checked in. I don't see anyone else yet, but we'll see. Uh, if they join in later on. Of course, uh, you can always watch this on replay uh, the next day uh, or sometime later in the week or in the far distant future, whenever that might be. Okay, <laughs> uh, let's get our text up on the screen. There we go. And uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would guide our study this evening as we Consider um, the words of the preacher-teacher to, to the Hebrews. We ask that you would comfort us in the midst of difficult subjects, uh, especially apostasy, that is, the forsaking of faith, to recognize that you are always seeking after your lost sheep and seeking to bring them home. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I kind of hinted here what we're going to get into, which is, and I actually telegraphed it a little bit last week too, it's a difficult subject. Uh, it's a subject that we did talk about back in chapter 6, chapter 4, chapter 2, and now here it is again in chapter 10, uh, which is, you know, the way that the preacher-teacher couples a exhortation, the hortatory um, exhortation we talked about last, last week, the let us, let us, let us. Then he'll couple that encouragement with um, a warning, right? And we don't like to hear warnings. Right? Children don't like to hear warnings. I suppose you don't like sermons that say that warn you, um, especially if it's something that you hold dear and then you're being warned uh, to forsake that idol, maybe, that you've uh, come to trust in. All right? So I can understand why uh, it would be received negatively. And But one thing that we need to remember is that the text we're going to look at today is in the context first of this exhortation, which we looked at last week, um, verse chapter 10, verse 19 uh, through 25. And then it's going to be followed by this lengthy um, reminder of how uh, all the saints that were saved by faith, right? Chapter 11, by faith, by faith, by faith, uh, which is really encouraging, actually, as much as verses 19 through 25. Good to see you checking in there, Gus and Eileen. And, and uh, looks like... Don, maybe Karen, I don't know. It's always Don for sure. Um, good to have you checking in this evening. Anyway, back to the point. Uh, we have an exhortation here, just five verses, and then we're going to get a whole chapter of examples of saints who are saved by faith, uh, which is actually encouraging because most of them are pretty terrible people. <laughs> so uh, they're saved not because of their pious actions or works or words, uh, but rather by their trust in the Son of God for the forgiveness of sins, right? So even though we're going to have a warning here tonight that's going to be a little bit strict and, and strident, um, actually not a little bit, 
the bridges out warnings. Yeah. <laughs> Don't worry. We're going to see our way through it. Yes. Very good. The bridge is out. All right. So just trying to make sure we put it in context. Um, actually, yeah, let's read it first and then uh, we'll talk about it. But first, let's back up. Just get what we covered last week uh, for context and then we'll jump into the text for tonight. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in the full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We talked about that last week, right? Uh, That's a baptism reference, obviously. Another let us. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful, right? Remember, hold God to his promises. And then another, and let us consider one another in order to uh, provoke or stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting. We talked about this parakaleo. Actually, I don't know how much we talked about it, but uh, we're going to talk about it in Sunday, the next couple weeks, right? Because we hear of the giving of the Holy Spirit, the comforter, the exhorter, the paraclete, right? I wish the Bible uh, translation, the translators translated the scriptures uh, consistently. So every time you bumped into this word, it was translated the same way. If they, if they wanted to choose exhorting, just always translate it as exhorting, including the noun form to be exhort, uh, the exhorter, right? But uh, they don't. So the meaning's often veiled from you, unfortunately. Um, but exhorting one another, comforting one another, encouraging one another, advocating for one another, that'd be a good way to translate it too. The parakaleo, to call upon one another. And so much more as you see the day, that's the day of return of Christ and judgment, approaching. All right? So this is all, again, an encouragement. Let us, let us, let us. Three of those, right? Um, having our, our conscience washed clean, that is, that we trust in the forgiveness of sins, hold fast to our confession without hope, uh, without wavering, because Christ promised, um, and we hold him to his promises, and then to consider one another, to gather together as saints around the word, around the forgiveness of sins, right? And in the midst of that, exhort one another um, to remain in that forgiveness of sins, right? That's the good works that's being talked about here to love one another, to care for one another in their body, of course. We talked about that too last week, right? Which is all a fruit of that faith that, that is given. All right. Now it's going to get a little more intense. <laughs> all right. Uh, maybe we need to, we'll need to back up and look at chapter 6 as well, but we'll, we'll see what we have time for tonight. <clears throat> all right. So I'm going to use Dr. Kleinig's translation, um, and I'll follow along here on this. You can follow along on the screen. So I'll call out the verse numbers so that you can um, see where we are. All right. Verse 26. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, a sacrifice for sins is no longer left. Verse 27. But rather a fearful prospect of judgment and a fiery zeal that is soon to devour the opponents of God. All right, verse 28. Anyone who sets aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. 29. Yeah, there we go. 
by how much more do you think will we be held worthy of more severe judgment who tramples on the Son of God and regards the blood of the covenant by which he has been made holy as something profane and insults the Spirit of grace? Verse 30, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I myself will repay. And again, the Lord will vindicate his people. Verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Ooh, 32, but recall or remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great contest by your sufferings. Hmm. Verse 33, having at times been exposed to ridicule, and afflictions as a public spectacle, and having at times become partakers with those who were treated in this way. Verse 34, For you also suffered with those in prison, and you accepted the confiscation of your property with joy, recognizing that you yourselves have a better possession that remains. 35, Therefore do not throw away your right of free speech. We talked about that word free speech, confidence here. That remains. Oh, excuse me, that, that re, excuse me, I read the wrong thing. Therefore, do not throw away your right of free speech, which has the payment of a great reward. There you go. All right. Verse 36. For you have need of endurance, so that having done God's will, you may possess what is promised. For Yet a little while, the coming one will come, and he will not delay. 38. However, my righteous one shall have life by faith, but if he shrinks back, my soul is not well pleased with him. 39. But we, we, however, do not belong to the people who shrink back for destruction, but to the people of faith for the safekeeping of the soul. All right. So this, like I said, this does remind us of Uh, What we had back in uh, Hebrews 6, verse, I want to say 27, somewhere in there. Uh, No, it's a little bit before that. Here it is. Uh, It's impossible. Oh, maybe it's at the first part. Here it is. Um... Hmm, I can't find it is. The the specific word that's hard to hear. Ah, oh, here it is. Okay, I found it. Verse, it's, it's chapter six, verse four. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come if they fall away to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. All right, so we talked about, ooh, that's a hard word to hear. Um, and I think I, I kind of, I like the approach that we took on it. Um, of course, now my memory's not so good exactly how we did it, so you'd have to go back and find um, the video for chapter six, verse four, and following there. Um, but the, the idea is um, that to reject Jesus, of course, is to reject, reject salvation. And that's, that's quite a bit different than rejecting, say, uh, the law of Moses, which is meant to show us our sin. 
All right. So um, this is this is actually, I would say, probably the most dangerous gambit that you can play as a Christian um, is to not is to not trust in Jesus and His Word. Um, that's like playing with fire in a sense that you know you deny one word of Jesus. What what other words are you going to n- deny? Ultimately, His death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. All right. Um, so let's not go there. All right, so that's not where we are. We are in 10, verse 19. Jumping back to our text. Um, so let's walk through it. All right. So it, it is pretty intense, but I think, um, I think we can talk in a similar way as we did with chapter 6 here from chapter 10. Um, before we do that, actually, I wanted to share what Dr. Kleinig has to say um, in summary, and uh, this will help guide, actually, our conversation. This passage, with its warning and instruction, is not included in any current lectionary. The reason is obvious. If it were merely read without any homiletical or didactic exposition, it could could unnecessarily burden the conscience of sensitive people, who would wonder whether they were damned because they had sinned deliberately in some way. It could also be readily dismissed by hardened sinners who had never believed in Christ, nor had ever received the Spirit in baptism and in the blood of of Christ in the Supper. They could maintain that they never had trampled on the Son of God, desecrated his blood, and insulted the Holy Spirit, which would also be wrong. The passage would be best examined in a Bible study on the topic of the last judgment. All right, so remember, just as you see the day uh, approaching, where was that? That right here, verse 25. All right, so that's the subject matter, that's the context, is it the last judgment? So then we're going to, that's what we'll talk about today. In this context, the pastor or teacher could show how it is closely connected with the teaching in the previous section, we've already done that, and use it to assure faithful Christians of their salvation. All right, so that's what we're going to try to do tonight. Since they are baptized, have faith, and faithfully receive Christ's body and blood in in his supper, they are righteous before God, and Christ owns them as such. God will therefore vindicate them in his final judgment of the world, just as he now justifies them by pardoning them. Since they are justified by faith in Jesus, they have the sure promise of eternal life with him and with all other people of the Christian faith. They have the promise of a great reward in heaven, the promise of eternal inheritance. Best of all, they need not be afraid of how God will treat them, since they have a good conscience, which we just read above, right? Uh, That was in uh, verse 22, Um, and we saw that back in chapter 9, we'll see it again in a few chapters. They can be sure of where they stand with God. As holy royal brothers of Jesus, they have, been fr- they have freedom of speech with him, the privilege of access to God the Father, confidence to address him as dear children address their dear fathers. They may claim his mercy and grace both now in the divine service and when they stand before him on the last day. All this is theirs through faith in Jesus, the one who came to save them from their sin, or from sin, who now comes to them in the divine service to save them from the guilt and shame of sin, who will come to save them from the penalty, eternal death. Their salvation is assured. They belong to the people of faith, whose souls are kept safe by Christ in life and in death for all eternity. They are God's treasured possession. Since they have God's grace now and the assurance of it in the future, they have need of only one thing, endurance. The retention of that grace, persistence in that faith and hope, and holding fast to the confession no matter what. All right, and we'll leave the rest uh, to the conclusion. All right, 
So um, it does continue on, and we know it's continuing on with what uh, we saw before. Why? Because look at how it begins. For, gar, right? Therefore, just like we saw before. So we're moving from the section about um, admonition, you know, here's all the good things, let us do this, let us have that, let us receive this, and we're to an instruction. Um, this is like that warning against apostasy we saw back in chapter 6. Um, and, uh, we're gonna, and we saw it also about in the judgment day back in chapter 9. Um, maybe we should just quickly look at that. 9 verse 27. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. All right. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time, that's on the last day, apart from sin for salvation. Right. So we've had that, that theme of the judgment day popping up here a few times. So this is not new. Um, right. So we're going to, there's, there's a warning about the, uh, what do you want to say? The penalty for deliberately rejecting the Son of God. Um, but also at the end, we do have a little bit of the reward for participation in the divine service. All right. And, and really, there's a couple Old Testament texts, at, 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 I think, in the background here, even though they're not always explicitly quoted. All right. And maybe we need to look at that first. Yeah, I think so. Um, and then we'll look at the specific quotations um, later on. So, in the background is, I want to say, one of the songs of the church. I think we talked about this, that there's, I think, 12 odes that are in the Greek Old Testament, which is what uh, the preacher teacher here quotes. Those 12, I think it's 12 odes, uh, one of which is the Song of Moses. I think most of them are assigned to us um, to be sung at the Easter Vigil. So if you remember, that was probably two weeks ago we talked about that. All right, one of them is the Song of Moses, which is Deuteronomy 32, uh, 35, I think. So um, that's in the, I think that's in the background. Remember, this is being preached and or, and or taught in the context of a divine service. So it's not too much to, to imagine that this common um, hymn of the Greek church would be heard by them. All right, yeah, so here's the song. And uh, it's pretty intense as well. So maybe that's what we're going to scroll back here and show you how it begins and then show you what happens here. Because it's, it's full of the same kind of warnings. Sorry for the fast scrolling on screen here. I guess it's just beginning of the chapter. Yeah. Moses spoke in the hearing of all the assembly of Israel the words of this song until they were ended. All right. So it starts with the same kind of you know, exhortation. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. Let my teaching drop as rain, my speech distill as the dew, as raindrops on the tender herb, and as showers on the grass. For I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. He is the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of truth and without injustice, righteous and upright, is he. All right? So we start with who is God? Mm -hmm. Right? And then what happens? Hmm. Right now, he taught this song to Israel. So they would sing this song. This is really incredible. They have corrupted themselves. They are not his children because of their blemish. A perverse and crooked generation. Jesus says that himself, doesn't he? Do you thus deal with the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father who has bought you? Has, 
Has he not made you and established you? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you, your elders, and they will tell you. When the Most High divided their inheritance to the nations, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the boundaries of the people. All right, so this is what Moses does. He says, all right, you're foolish, but here, we're going to give you wisdom. And what is that? To tell you all the things that God has done for you throughout time, right? Up to this point, which is at, uh, so we have Jacob, uh, we have Abraham, we have oil from the rock, we have all sorts of people here. They sacrificed to gods, to demons. They forgot God. God provoked them. They are a perverse generation, children in whom is no fake. They provoked me. They moved me. But I will provoke them to jealousy by those who are not a nation. Move them. Right? Oh, here we go. For a fire is kindled in my anger. Right? So this is this fiery zeal, which we're going to see um, referred to in chapter 10 of Hebrews. Uh, Fire on the mountains. Of course, that's a Grateful Dead song. Um, I will heap disasters on them. I will spend my arrows on them. Okay, this, that's not the part I think he quotes. Um, yeah, this is really strict judgment stuff. Which is really a call to repentance. All right. Oh, yes. The wine is the poison of sermons. The cruel venom of cobras. Here we go. All right, so... Um, 34, is this not laid up in store with me, sealed up among my treasures? Vengeance is mine and recompense. Their foot shall slip in due time for the day of their calamities at hand and the things to come hasten upon them. For the Lord will judge his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and that there is no one remaining bond or free. He will say, where are their gods, etc. Right? He will have compassion on his servants. So notice in the midst of this song of strict judgment, um, God's always there. He's the one bringing that zeal, that judgment, and he's doing it for the sake of repentance. Um, This, I think it's very similar, or maybe it's just straight up quoted in Psalm 135, if I remember correctly. For the Lord will judge his people and he will have compassion on his servants. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. We've, we just uh, had another psalm that pretty much is an exact copy of this, right? They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes, but they do not have. Um, eyes they have, but they do not see. That would have been probably, what, Psalm 115 or so? Right, I think so. Um, let's see, what other text should we look at? How about Deuteronomy 17? What we're trying to see here is that the, the this kind of theme of, of judgment and rebellion is something that's... Um, it's through the whole Old Testament. It's a warning. So this is not out of place to warn um, even Christians, those uh, who are part of the Christian fellowship, of the, the example of the Old Testament people and apostasy. All right. Whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Right. So that's the law of Moses, right, which uh, is quoted. Uh, it's in verse 28, which we'll look at. And then, uh, how about Habakkuk as another, I think we, well, Habakkuk's a straight-up quote, so we don't have to do that. All right, let's go back to our text, and let's go through line verse by verse, okay? I'm sorry, I'm having troubles typing tonight, apparently. There we go. All right, for if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of truth, of the truth, that's namely Jesus, 
there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. All right. So this would shock, I think, is, is meant to shock you as a listener. It was like, wait a minute. We just heard about how Jesus is the sacrifice for sins. And uh, where is it? Yeah, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, right? He's the high priest who has entered through the veil, the holiest, by the blood of Jesus, right? And we have boldness to enter. And now you're saying, just scroll down here again, um, if we receive the knowledge of truth, but we sin willfully against it, that sacrifice of sins is annulled, right? Um, why? Why? Because you are uniquely privileged to receive forgiveness of sins um, in Jesus, that knowledge of the truth, right? Through your baptism, through the word, right? And probably then subsequent and regular participation in the divine service. Then to rebel against that word of salvation, which is foundational, the life-giving word, teaching of Christ's resurrection, your brothers, you know, being kinship with Christ, having received his body and blood, um, then what? You reject that? Hmm. All right. Well, then what happens? I think he's setting up a, what we might call a rhetorical question or even a riddle. It's like, well, wait a minute. What is meant by sinning willfully? What, don't we all sin willfully? Isn't our, sin, our will bound to sin? Hmm. Um, does this mean, is he talking about like what we just heard just a few verses before, not assembling together, as is the practice of some? So is this, you know, cease, deliberately ceasing to attend divine service? Is that what he's talking about? Hmm. Um, have, have I or, or even we as a congregation been sin, sinning deliberately? And if so, are we damned? Have, have we rejected the sacrifice of sins that Christ has made? Is it annulled by our intentional sin? That is an interesting question, is it not? Um, and this will, sinning willfully has in mind an Old Testament um, distinction that maybe isn't as well known to you. I think we talked about it before, though. Numbers 15, all right, it's, called, it's here. If you sin unintentionally, right, willful versus unwillful, and do not observe all these commandments which the Lord has spoken to Moses, all that the Lord has commanded you by the hand of Moses from the day that the Lord gave commandment and onward throughout your generations, then it will be, if it is unintentionally committed, without the knowledge of the congregation, that the whole congregation shall offer one young bull as a burnt offering, as a sweet aroma to the Lord, with its grain offering and its drink offering, according to the ordinance, and one kid of the goats as a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement for the whole congregation of the children of Israel, and it shall be forgiven them, for it was unintentional. They shall bring their offering, an offering made by fire to the Lord, and their sin offering before the Lord, for their unintended sin. It shall be forgiven the whole congregation of the children of Israel and the stranger who dwells among them because all the people did it unintentionally. So notice it's also a communal sin, right? It's a sin of the congregation. And if the, a person sins unintentionally, then he shall bring a female goat in the first year as a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement, etc. All right. <clears throat> so we have um, this idea of an unintentional sin coming right out of Numbers uh, 15 there, right? Um, and maybe, maybe this is a distinction we can talk about later um, between what the, the medieval uh, Roman church uh, spoke of as mortal and venial sins, right? 
So venial sins are typically, you know, the the little sins is, I guess, how people think about it. But it, 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 I think it's probably actually coming out of this understanding of those sins that are done willfully, rejecting the Holy Spirit, right? And those sins that are done unwillfully or unintentionally, just because of our sinful nature. I think that's the distinction that was made then, and we'll talk about it more because the reformers have things to say. All right. Um, is that what's going on here? I think he is talking about willful sins. That is saying, saying to God directly, provoking him and saying, I do not believe, right? Um, so deliberately defying his word. And, uh, so that, and again, it's hinted at here in verse 25, right? The forsaking of the gathering together of sums, some as has been the practice of some. Right now, if you do this, the sinning willfully, which we'll try to spin out here as we get through it, um, you should have an expectation of a fearful expectation of judgment. Right, God's judgment always is dealing with sin and its consequences. Um, here, it's described in two ways. First, it's described as fiery indignation, or um, um, it's really just fiery zeal. Um, this word indignation, we're not—I don't think we know too well. <laughs> Do we ever use this to be indignant? All right. Mm. Um, so yes, yeah, the it's the zeal of the Lord's, you know, the fire. And what is what does fire do in the scriptures in particular? It purifies, right? Like dross, right? It burns off the dross so that you're purified. Or the fire of judgment is what consumes, right? In this case, it's a wrathful fire of God's holiness that consumes all that is unclean and unholy. And we'll see more about this in. Uh, Hebrews 12. But but notice it's indignation, it's zeal, right? It's not dispassionate. It's not just like God is arbitrarily angry, but that he's specifically angry um, over this rejection of, of his son and of his word, right? So he always goes about rejecting that which would get in the way, destroying that which would get in the way of reception of Jesus and faith in him. And sometimes um, that might be someone within a congregation, for example, um, who has rejected the word of truth um, and is seeking to draw away others, right? Um, God will vindicate his word. Uh, he will vindicate his son. Um, this is something that I think we have forgotten. I know I per- particularly have um, in thinking about like the attacks on the church and on the Christian faith um, in our secular world. It's like, you know, is God God or not? <laughs> is he powerful to save? Has he pr- promised to protect his people? Yes. Is there anything that the state can do to destroy your faith? Not unless you let them, right? I mean, that's it. The Holy Spirit, faith, baptism, can that, that's going to hold true regardless. The preaching of the word, we're not stopping, right? They can throw me in jail if I need to, if they want to. It doesn't matter. The church will continue. The Holy Spirit will continue to gather, call, gather, enlighten, and sanctify, regardless of whatever they throw our way. I think that's important to note, right? Because they're going to, he's going to, the right preacher teacher here is going to get to some of the reasons, I think, why people um, do reject um, Jesus and his word. All right. And, and again, God is going to devour his adversaries, right? I mean, that's a powerful, that's really a powerful promise. Again, it's, it's set here in the context of a warning about rejecting the faith for you. Um, but anything or anyone that's opposed to his son uh, will get what's coming to them, if you want to put it in really colloquial terms. 
Um, so in one sense, uh, there's nothing to worry about. In another sense, it's a record, recognize that God will have his church um, and he will uh, end anything and anyone that gets in the way, right? Devour those adversaries. All right. So what is meant by an intentional sin? Right? He's going to get back to that now. All right. So anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses, right? So we went and looked at uh, Deuteronomy 17 for that already. So you kind of got that. Um, what he's going to do here is, is something that we've done before when it comes to an argument, is move from a lesser argument to a greater argument. So the lesser being Moses' law, the greater being, um, if you like, the law of Christ. All right, so now this, this law here, anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He is talking specifically about rejecting the word that Moses spoke, namely the faith that is given by that word. Right, so we're talking about apostasy, that is rejecting the first commandment. And if we look um, back at, at Deuteronomy 17, we don't need to right now. It's, it's, actually, it's particularly about um, being in service to pagan gods and worshiping them. Um, and in specific, actually, it's the drawing away of others to worship the pagan idols. Cast, you know. So again, God will vindicate his word. He will vindicate his name. In the Old Testament, right, he did it actually um, by putting them to death, <laughs> literally. All right, on the evidence of two or three witnesses without mercy. All right, so what is sinning willfully then by extension? It's, it's this kind of deliberate offense, right? Um, an act of apostasy that is rejecting the faith of the living God in service to a pagan and to pagan gods or false deities disguised. Um, well, the, actually, false deities are just demons disguised, right? And, but all, this, all the while purporting that it is the true worship of God. All right? So there, there are... We're always taught, you know, as a child, I suppose, that all sin is equal. And in one sense, before God, it is, right? Um, all sin, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But here's the flip side of that. Not all sin is equal before one another, right? Which, which is more severe, to reject the word of faith or to reject the word of faith and to lead others astray, okay? So the consequence of, of rejecting the word and then following after false gods and teaching others to do so that that has a far more significant consequence, and it does in the penalty of hell as well. You know, um, I'm trying to think like sins in the body we talked about in First Corinthians, same story, right? Yes, before God, equal as far as sinful, right? Whoever lusts in his heart has already committed adultery with her. He says he's very clear about sixth commandment. On the other hand, having lust in your heart doesn't have the same consequence as actually physically or emotionally or whatever, committing adultery with, with someone, all right? It's one thing to, to have those hearts, thoughts privately in your, in your mind and your heart. It's another thing to actually act upon them, right? Because the consequences are more severe, right? Um, you know, to like a marriage or whatnot. I mean, it's all adultery, um, and it all needs to be rejected and, and repented of for the sake of forgiveness, right? But the consequence is going to be more severe upon um, your marriage and your other relationships. Okay. So far, that point's clear here. So why such a strong, strident judgment against apostasy? Because specifically, um, it is the worship of false gods. It's a, it's going against the first commandment and the con and the con. Uh, what do you want to say? The um, 
consequences uh, for the person doing this, especially upon his family, right? Leading them into false worship is uh, needs to be more severe. And God does punish it more severely in the law of Moses, right? Especially those who entice people to worship other gods receive a more strict judgment. All right, so that's the that's the lesser actual actually. Now the greater. How much worse the punishment? See, lesser to greater. How much worse do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the son of God underfoot? Now how do you put God's the son of God under your feet? Well, we'll talk about that. Or two, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing. Right? Three, insulted the spirit of grace. All right, so we've got three, um, three kinds of apostasy that's denying of the faith, in particular for those who once were of the Christian covenant, right? The covenant of grace. So again, this is a rhetorical question. And what, what, is, the, what is the preacher teacher begging? He's begging a question here. Have we sinned willfully? Have we deliberately hmm, made the, the blood of Jesus a common thing? Have we insulted the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of grace? Right? Um, and here, he says, how much worse the punishment do you suppose? What is he doing? He's actually putting you in the judgment seat, right? Not to judge God, but to judge, one, to judge apostasy, right? So he's, he's, wanting, he's taking you outside of yourself and putting you above and looking down and say, okay, it's kind of like um, parents do with children, right? Where you say, all right, Johnny, um, you know, what, what do you think, what do you, how do you think I feel about what you did? Or how do you think your brother feels about what you said, right? Or thinks about what you said, right? So taking someone outside of themselves and trying to have them walk in um, the shoes of the person they've offended or sinned against, or maybe um, in this case, to sit in the seat of judgment, the one uh, parents actually this is a really great strategy for parents is that someone's caught in their sin and they and they repent um and then you say well what do you think the punishment should be it's doing the same thing here what do you think the punishment should be right and always always children will um pick a much more severe <laughs> much more severe punishment than what you would have picked <laughs> for them um, because you're the parent you always want to show mercy isn't that something all right so uh, that's that's the question going on here, and of course, what's the what's the punishment? It should be the same as it was for Moses, or even more severe. Not only um, to be put to death, but to to suffer eternally in hell, I suppose. Right. So here we're talking about those who have sinned intentionally by again back in twenty twenty five, rejected the gathering together, as is the case of some. Right, the forsaking of the assembly of ourselves together, right? So this deliberate um, rejection of the divine service where Jesus gives forgiveness in life by his word. And uh, I think we talked about it last week, but in my experience as pastor, there, there's really nothing um, more difficult to overcome than someone who has decided to repeatedly, regularly uh, cease to attend divine service. There's something about that, that, that uh, psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, it, it almost is insurmountable uh, until maybe tragedy strikes, um, or they get the quote-unquote wake-up call, you know, 
Um, sometimes it's unpredictable as to when people might return and begin attending again. This is one of the big concerns we had with COVID, of course, and the lockdowns, is that we were really setting people up for this in a way that was uh, unhelpful. All right. Um, now, we can't just leave it there, though. Uh, but let's talk about these three things before we move on. All right. So what is it to trample the Son of God underfoot? What does this mean? It doesn't just mean stepping on the person, but here, it's, of course, it's stepping on top of God's only Holy Son who um, occupies the highest place in heaven and earth. So this is effectively um, treating Jesus as who, who you've received in your baptism um, as worthless, dishonored, right? Putting Jesus um, to shame, in a sense. All right? Remember, because God's going to put all enemies under his feet. Right, and now you're you're treating God as if he's your enemy. He doesn't want to be your enemy. <laughs> Jesus proves that, right? Peace be with you, he says to his disciples. Um, so don't make him out to be your enemy again. Second, right, he uh, regards the blood of the covenant by which he's been made holy as something profane or common. Right, it's not just rejecting or renouncing God's Son, um, but actually rejecting or treating his life-saving or life-giving blood, that most holy gift. Um, as something despicable, right? This is this is called a sacrilege, right? Jesus offered up this blood for redemption from sin. It's the blood of the covenant. It cleanses, it sanctifies, and of course it's given to us in the Holy Communion. Thus, not only rejecting the Son, but rejecting the source of forgiveness that he gives, that is his blood, um, is a way of desecrating his holiness, right? Desecrating it, not by misusing it so much here at this point, um, but just Treating it as a common thing, as a profane thing, just as, well, it's just something that we do together. All right? Um, this is why, when, especially in regards to the Lord's Supper, but really in regards to baptism too, we treat it with great reverence and awe. Um, why? Because of who Jesus says, or what Jesus says he gives there, which is his blood. He's washed in your blood, and you're washed in his blood, I should say, in baptism. He gives you his blood to drink, right? So we use, we use uh, vessels that indicate. Um, well, this is the blood of the, um, the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. All right. And then third, he insults the spirit of grace. Now the spirit of grace, um, is a connecting us back to a promise in Zechariah, actually Zechariah 12 and 10. I don't want to read too much of it, right? <laughs> Cause we'll be here all night. Um, behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples, et cetera, et cetera. He's going to cut people into pieces. That's really beautiful. Uh, verse 10, here it is. And I will pour on the house of David and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace. There it is. And supplication. And they will look on me whom they pierced. Right? So we have the Holy Spirit given at the cross. The gift that is given, of course, is the one in whom they have pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only begotten son, well, his only son, and grieve for him as one who grieves for his firstborn. All right, what a beautiful prophecy of Christ. And right, the Spirit is given at the cross, and it is it is gift. That's what grace means, giftedness of God. All right, we can't read all of this, um, but notice what happens in chapter 13. In that day, a fountain shall be opened for the house of David. And for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and for uncleanness. 
a fountain. What? I think there's actually, we actually sing a hymn about it being a fountain of his blood. That may be right. All right. So uh, that's really worth going and reading that whole prophecy because it's, it's certainly at hand here um, in our text. All right, let me get back to it here. There it is. Um, right, so what spirit are we talking about here? The Holy Spirit, right? Because he's the gift to God's saints. He gives God's gifts. That's his job. We're going to talk about that the next couple of weeks, right? With Exaudi and then uh, Pentecost. <clears throat> and the Spirit's job is to assure you of God's giving to you, Jesus, um, and that you can approach him to receive his gifts, right? So then to insult the Spirit of grace is to say that to the Holy Spirit, I know you got gifts to give me. I don't want them. And he says, no, 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 here, this is for you. It's good. Forgiveness, life, salvation, in Christ's blood. And you say, no, nah, don't need it. Don't want it. Right? You can see how that's an insult. Right? Nothing really can be worse than that. Rejecting a gift shows disgraceful contempt for the generous giver. Right? Um, re-gifting is probably, uh, maybe that's not what's going on here. But imagine, yeah, um, if the Lord said, look, I'm going to throw a party for you. And you said, you know what? I don't really care. Yeah, I don't really need it. Thanks, but no thanks. He says, no, really, seriously, I want to throw a party for you. You know, I love you. And I'm like, no, sorry, not needed. Don't worry about it. All right, so all three things are really interconnected. Um, the Spirit is poured out on those who are baptized into the Son, right? And in the divine service, God's Holy Son gives his sanctifying blood by the faithful reception of the Spirit of grace from God himself. So this is all one idea. You reject the Spirit, you reject the Son, you reject the blood that, the, that sanctifies you. All right? Fair. Good enough so far? So you can really see how 29 is really an interpretation of what we saw back in 25 about forsaking the assembling together, as some are. All right, so now we've had the rhetorical question about, you know, what is the right penalty for apostasy? That's rejecting Christ, rejecting faith. Uh, and then there's uh, two scripture quotations in a row here. For we know... Him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now that's from uh, Deuteronomy 32. And again, the Lord will judge his people, also from Deuteronomy 32, which we looked at. Yeah. All right, so rightly, um, the preacher teacher here draws memory to the, the hymn that they're used to singing that's the Song of Moses. It's like, oh yeah, this is just like what Moses said about rejecting um, the Lord, rejecting his gifts rejecting all the goodness of God, the mercy and the compassion that he has. He will have vengeance. He will judge his people. Mm. <clears throat> so I think these words are well known to them. Um, maybe they even learned that hymn as part of like their catechesis being brought into the church. Which please um, begs the question, um, maybe we should sing the Song of Moses as an active part of our, of our liturgical life, as a canticle that we sing in the church. Hmm. Uh, the Greek-speaking churches do. All right. So that's the first point. Um, let's see if there's anything else I wanted to speak about here. Yeah. Then there's this note. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Right? And now fearful here, this is phobaron, uh, for baros. Right. This is this is like uh, Peter and the disciples in the boats during the storm. Don't you care that we're perishing? It's that kind of fear. Right. Phobo, phobos. Right. Phobia, from which we get phobia. It's that kind of fear, like that that paralyzing 
um, existential dread, right? Um, that's how we should. That's how we should think about forsaking um, the hearing of Jesus' word, the reception of his gifts, right? That regular, persistent rejection. I think that's an important note to make. I mean, we're not talking about you know taking a week off because you're you're um, going to go visit family or you can't can't get to church you know just because of schedule or something or your work is prohibiting you. I mean, we're not talking about um, that's not open rejection. We're talking about people who say, you know what, pastor, I'm done with church. I don't need I don't need church. I'm going to be a Christian without church or you know I don't believe any of that stuff anymore either. Or maybe the just the more apathetic. You know, I just I just don't really care. It's not that important to me. I'll just watch online or something. Uh, which I who knows if they actually do. How would I ever know? All right, that's what we're talking about here. All right, so so I think that's one of the mm, cautions we should make is to make sure we're clear here. We're talking about open, persistent rebellion against God and His Word. All right. Um, and that should be fearful. You should be fearful of that. So it's a potentially dangerous situation. I think that's maybe the right way to think about it, right? And as a pastor, you know, as a pastor, um, we want to warn people about the potential danger. It's kind of like um, what happens with baptism often with young children, right? We'll baptize the young child, and then the parents will somehow miss the memo about being regular and consistent in worship. Like, well, my kid doesn't understand what's going on, or you don't have Sunday school right now, or whatever it is. They come up with excuses. And like, hmm. What did Jesus actually command? Believe and be baptized, right? No, that's that's true. He did. That's Mark sixteen. How about Matthew twenty eight? Um, baptize, make disciples by baptizing and teaching them, right? How am I supposed to? How are you supposed to teach your children the faith if you're not in the divine service? If you're not receiving the teaching that the Lord gives, All right? So we need to make that warning. Um, all right, and then he gives, um. After this warning of apostasy, um, a way of maybe remembering, right? But recall the former days in which, after you were illumined, illuminated or enlightened, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle, both by the reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were also so treated. For you had compassion on me and my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven, right? So here's an encouragement, but, right? But look, you remember how God actually preserved the faith in you even when things got difficult, right? You know, earlier in your life as believers, when you were enlightened, you heard the gospel of salvation, you were catechized, you received baptism, and then you, were suffer- you suffered attacks from the secular world, from a hostile society, right? And again, I think this is encouraging for us because we're in the midst of that and it's going to increase. It's not going to get less. We're going to have all sorts of suffering come our ways. Maybe, um, you know, to draw on this text, it will come in two different forms. Um, you know, to be verbally attacked by, and with public mockery, right? We're seeing this with the arrest of uh, pastors in, in Canada and, and uh, UK and elsewhere, maybe here eventually too. Um, and there was like, well, and there's a physical spectacle about it. Um, Pastor uh, Arthur, I forget his last name. Um, you know, they they followed him out of church after he got in his car. They pulled him off in the middle of the road. They took a bunch of cops and made a big spectacle out of it. Right? Um, you know, that may happen more and more. Unfortunately, treated as criminals, 
Um, of course, these people are, are thinking about those who are taken into the gladiatorial arenas or put uh, on public parade as, as uh, prisoners of war, that kind of thing. All right, so that's, that's, that's uh, one kind of form of suffering. Uh, but look in verse 33. Um, what's, what's the other? Suffering by association with those who are publicly persecuted, right? By visiting them when they're in prison, right? Which he talks about here in 34, you know, having compassion on me and my chains. So coming to visit those in prison who are in prison for the sake of faith, not simply because of sin. Um, what else? Providing them food and clothing for them and their families. Showing solidarity with those who are imprisoned or executed for the faith, right? Even to the point where, what does it say here? Yeah, that their, their goods were confiscated. Ooh, that's pretty intense, right? Um, notice how even through all that, the suffering did not divide up the community as the opponents probably intended, right? <laughs> to drive the, the community apart. But instead, um, they, they shared in this suffering together, right? So remember, remember how the Lord preserved the faith amongst you, even as all these terrible things were happening to you. You were, you were put on public spectacle. You were made a mockery of. You were imprisoned. Um, you had your goods stolen from you. Wow, can you imagine all of that just for being a Christian? For having received baptism, been illuminated by the Holy Spirit, and been instructed in the divine service? You might need to imagine it <laughs> a little bit more vividly. since It, it, it could be coming again. All right. Notice though, even if everything is taken from you, all your goods, look at what you have, a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven, right? So so what if they take your stuff? What if, so what if they confiscate your goods? So what if they change the tax code and they make it an incredible burden to be a Christian congregation in this country? So what? It's just stuff. It's just money. It doesn't even mean anything anyway, right? You have something that's far greater, of greater possession that no one can take from you, namely the suffering and death of Jesus, the shed blood for the forgiveness of your sins, right? You see? Um, and remember, um, you have him as your high priest. You have all the encouragement um, and, the, and your hope um, of the fellow inheritors. We, we have that free access to the Father, right? Remember that freedom of speech we talked about last week. And we're going to hear about how you even have all the witnesses that surround you. That's in the next chapter, chapter 12. Or two chapters away. A cloud of witnesses in chapter 12. All right. All right. So therefore, since you already have this rich possession, right, why would you cast it away? That's this kind of rhetorical question. Don't cast it away. Why would you throw away something that um, has eternal significance for something that's ephemeral and worthless and that's just going to pass away? Right. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence. We talked about this. This is your freedom of speech, that access to the Father which has a great reward, right? Don't throw it away. Why would you throw it away? It's come from God. It's a gift to you um, as a citizen of the heavenly Jerusalem. It's a mark um, of your identity. It tells you who you are. But it is true, for you have need of endurance, right? Um, so that you can persist even after, even being attacked, right? So, so I, I love the way that Despite the warning here, he does acknowledge that things aren't always easy for you as a Christian. <laughs> um, you'll be mocked and shamed and, and treated poorly, just as your Savior was. Okay, that's that's part of the life of the Christian. Um, and so you have the the inheritance, 
but you do not yet have it as well, right? It's coming. For you have need of endurance so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise, all right? So you have it by way of promise, uh, but, but also there is the endurance until the end, the need to endure. Um, and that, that, that came up earlier, right? Uh, was that back here in 32, 34? Yeah, right in here. How they endured great struggle with sufferings, right? So endure. You have need of this endurance. Um, so just like he used Deuteronomy 32 in the Song of Moses, um, when talking about the, um, the danger of apostasy or rejecting the faith, now um, he's going to do the same, but he's going to use a scripture um, to what? To support this need for endurance, right? And so what's he quoting here? He's quoting all sorts of stuff, actually. Um, this is Habakkuk chapter 2, um, verses 3 and 4. Right? For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Right? So that little while, you can think of uh, um, the Upper Room Discourse, which we heard, what, a week or two ago? Um, now the just shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. Or my just one, actually. So the just one, meaning Jesus, shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. So there's the warning, but don't worry. He's coming. It's just going to be a little while. He's not tarrying, and he will give you life, right, by faith. Um, I think the, the main point there, though, of course, um, well, maybe there's four things that we should draw out of this. Let's see if we can do that. Hmm. Fourth, four points. The first is the coming. Um, who is the coming one? He, right, who is coming? Who is that? The Messiah, right? So this is clearly referring to Jesus. Um, if he shrinks back, um, is not referring to the righteous man of faith, but it's, of course, referring to the one who apostates. Notice he's my, um, there's the, the my attached to the righteous one. Is it there? Uh, yeah, my soul has no pleasure in him, right? We have the my, my, my. And then, um, yeah, that's probably enough on that. All right. So why do, they, why do you need to endure, endure, and why do you need to... Uh, Endure all hardship in particular is because you're waiting for Christ to come on the last day, the day that he spoke of back in chapter, in verse 25, right? The day of judgment. Only in the second coming will you receive all that God has promised. Only then will God punish um, your opponents and vindicate them, vindicate you. And then you will receive the great reward. Receive it by, here, by faith in the righteous one. All right, who is Jesus, of course. And then we have the summation verse, right? And this is probably where we'll end up. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition or destruction. Think of the road to perdition. This is the backsliding, by the way, um, that's in um, uh, Pilgrim's Progress. But of those who believe to the saving of the soul. All right. So you have two, two options with two different outcomes. On the one hand, um, you, as a Christian, you can join those who are characterized by shrinking back from Christ. That's the slippery slope of apostasy we saw back in chapter 3. Um, it begins with inattention to God's word, chapter 2. Boredom with its instruction, chapter 5 and 6. Neglect of salvation, chapter 2. Forsaking the gathering of the congregation here in chapter 10. Finally, just falling away from God's son by disowning him and disavowing the confession of faith in him. As we saw in chapter 6 and here again 
in chapter 10. The outcome of that course of action is eternal destruction on the day of judgment. The irony of that is that they shrink back from Christ out of concern for their own safety, but what's the net result? The loss of their of their own souls, right? On the other hand, what's the other hand? They could endure, right? Remain people of faith in Christ by the endurance God gives them in the divine service. Not forsake the gathering together of, of, of the assembly, of, of the gathering together, right? Of people, as is, the, as is the practice of some, right? So now, remember, this is being preached and taught in the context of a divine service with the giving of, of Christ's shed blood for the forgiveness of sins through absolution, baptism, Lord's Supper, right? And he's, what is he exhorting them to do? To keep coming. Come back next week. Because if you don't, right? What are you doing? You're trampling Jesus underfoot, right? You're treating his blood as a common thing that can be received when and where you feel like it, right? You're rejecting the Spirit's grace. Jesus, take, eat, take, drink. And you say, eh, eh, nah, maybe not this week, maybe not next week, right? You can see how that, how that would be received. The alternative, again, is to endure and to be patient and to receive and to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord, right? In the divine service. Right? And the outcome of that course of action, of course, is that their soul is kept safe by God um, as his eternal possession. He'll even keep um, them safe in death, and they save their souls from eternal, uh, from death for eternal life for the day of judgment. All right, And so that's a secure identity that no one can destroy, not, no one can take from you. Right? But it does require endurance. It does require uh, one to continue to receive. Right, um, So this is, this is the problem. I love talking about the divine service as being gift. Come, receive the gifts, right? The problem is, is there's always a backspin to that. There's always a backspin to the gospel, the good news, the gift, right? Which is, but if you choose to reject the gift, what have you said about the gift? What have you said about the giver of the gift, right? You've rejected the Holy Spirit, you've rejected the gift of forgiveness of sins, and you're rejecting the giver of that gift, the Father, right? And is there a danger to not um, receiving the exhortation to, to come and be a part of the fellowship? Yes. And that's what he's doing here. Which isn't so pleasant, I suppose. All right. Um, our Lutheran Confessions talk about this in um, Article, let's see, Formula of Concord, Article 11, which has to do with election, divine election. Um, so I'd like to share with you maybe how Dr. Kleinig summarizes this, and then we'll actually read a section from Article 11. All right, so despite their privileged status as Christ's holy brothers, they may not presume on God's grace, right? So as Christians, despite being holy brothers, you don't presume on God's grace, that it's always there for you, and you could just come and treat it as a common thing, profane thing. For their salvation depends on their faithful adherence to God's Son. Since they share in Christ and his inheritance, they dare not renounce and reject him. This is by far the worst act of sacrilege, akin in gravity to trampling him under their feet. Just as they have the promise of eternal life through faith in him, they face eternal death if they disown him. They therefore need to accept God's judgment of their sins, repent of them, and seek to do God's holy will. Otherwise, they may slide down the slippery slope that leads from impenitence to inattention to God's voice, and from inattention to resistance of God's Holy Spirit. From spiritual resistance to hardness of heart, and from hardness of heart to boredom with God's holy word, from boredom to gradual withdrawal from the holy community, from withdrawal to the eventual rejection of God's holy son. You see? And that, that, 
that step-by-step, <laughs> I don't want to call it a methodology, but um, it's so typical. It's so typical. We see it, see it over and over and over again. It begins with rejection of, first begins with refusal to repent of one's sins. It always starts there, right? That impenitence leads to inattention to God's voice because you can't bear to hear God speak about your sins, the sins you refuse to repent, right? That inattention then becomes resistant to God's Holy Spirit because you refuse to hear the other words that he speaks. That resistance then becomes hardness of heart. Not only do you not want to hear it anymore, but now you refuse to hear it, right? You won't even let it get near you. Ultimately, then you become bored with God's holy word, like what's the point after all? And then withdrawing from the holy the community, because that's where we hear God's word is in the community, so you withdraw from it, and then eventually just reject God's holy son entirely. The, rem- the remembrance of God's just judgment keeps them focused on their need for persistence as faith as long as they live. And so here, listen to this. The assurance of salvation always coexists with the possibility of apostasy. The assurance of salvation always coexists with the possibility of apostasy. In its discussion on election, the formula of Concord teaches that even though salvation depends entirely on God's word, with his call to believe and his gift of faith in Christ, damnation comes from the rejection of Christ and his gospel. All right. So this is this is a key that maybe. Um, when we talk about will and election, we, we need to make clear. You're saved freely as a gift from God, not of your own doing. Ephesians 2, our memory verse for this week, right? But you alone, not God, can reject him, right? You are alone responsible for any unbelief and ultimately rejection of him. You're not responsible for your salvation. You're completely responsible for your um, damnation, all right? Who's going to save me from this body of sin, Paul says? Thanks be to God, Christ Jesus, the righteous one. All right, so listen to what the formula says. It is to be considered diligently that God punishes sin with sin. That is, because of their subsequent impurity, impenitence, and deliberate sins, God punishes with obduracy, that's hardness, and blindness those who have been converted. This must not be misconstrued as if it has never been God's gracious will that such people should come to the knowledge of truth and be saved. God's revealed will involves both items. First, that he would receive into grace all who repent and believe in Christ. Second, that he would punish those who deliberately turn away from the Holy Commandment and involve themselves again in the filth of this world. 2 Peter 2. Prepare their hearts for Satan, Luke 11, and outrage the Holy Spirit, Hebrews 10, verse 29. And that he would harden blind and forever damn them if they continue therein. Right? So what's the purpose of the hardness of heart? What's the purpose of leading people into this kind of perdition? Allowing them to fall into great shame and disrepair, to actually reject the Son of God. Why? So that they be saved by grace and grace alone. You see? Um, So this obviously ties in well with um, uh, the practice of excommunication. Again, we talked about that back in chapter 6. Here it is again. Why declare some outside the fellowship of Christ's church? So that they die eternally? No. That would be the consequence of them remaining impenitently, heart of heart, and refusing to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Absolutely. But why declare that to them? For the sake of repentance. Go back to the beginning. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And which is where it started. Impenitence at the beginning. Return them back to that, that starting point. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Be forgiven. Live with Christ again. All right? 
Um, and in order to prove that point, of course, um, we're going to talk about faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. All right. So we're going to hear all about faith in chapter 11. So I hate to leave it on this kind of like um, depressing note, but what is he doing? He's drawing us back to recognize, I would say that we all have this obduracy, this hardness of heart and penitence, um, and, and we need to be on guard against it. Um, but the guard against it is actually the reception of the divine service, the reception of Jesus' word, forgiveness of sins, the preaching of his word, uh, his body and blood in the supper. Right? That's our guard and protection against our own um, sinful inclination to, to reject God, to trample him underfoot, and to treat him as common. So it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way. By receiving the gifts, we, our faith is strengthened in those same gifts. When we're not sure whether we need the gifts, that's precisely the time when we need to receive them and have that um, renewed in us again right, by the work of the Spirit. All right. So, hallelujah, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. That's exactly right. Thanks, Don. Um, our, uh, what do we call that? Hallelujah verse, right? Um, in Divine Service Setting 1. That's exactly right. I got nothing here. I, it, left to my own devices, I would not be a Christian. I've often said that, actually, as a pastor, and I think it disturbs people, but I still say it. <laughs> it's like, look, if I weren't a pastor, I don't know if I'd get up every Sunday morning and show up. I really don't. Right? I have to be honest about that. Um, I'm here sometimes just because it's my job. Right, but I think you could operate in the same kind of fashion. Like some Sundays, you you probably just show up because it's the third commandment, <laughs> not because you're really particularly in the mood, um, or you really want the gifts. That that be honest about it, right? Recognize your own sin, your own impenitence, your own sinful heart, right? Um, but then allow the Holy Spirit to do the Holy Spirit thing, right? Or as uh, Doctor Nagel famously would say, you know, um, let God have His way with you. Just let him do his thing, <laughs> right? And it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. And, it, you know, some Sundays it probably doesn't work as well as it does to other Sundays. Again, what's the problem? It's not with God, it's with you. Or it might be with the preacher. And, well, no, it's never with the preacher. The preacher is always perfect. What am I saying? All right. Yes, good good note, Don. All right, so uh, we'll end our Bible study there. Um, yeah, no, that's a good place to end it. And, uh, yeah, I appreciate you all gathering with us tonight. Quite a few of you here. Um, hopefully that wasn't too discouraging. It's meant to be encouraging just to recognize that the Lord has provided the means for escape, and that's with his word, sacrament, in your baptism, the forgiveness of sins, right? That's what he gives, right? So those are always the means of escape from temptation to apostasy, to reject the faith. So as much as there's a strong warning here, um, the gifts are game, being given in the context of that warning, right? So, um, and the same for you. Here was the gift, right? You are forgiven. Go in the Lord's peace. Have a blessed evening. We'll see you again in the morning for our congregation prayer at 9 a.m. See you then.